Roche Podcast, co-production of the Social Research Lab and WKDT at West Point. This is a new effort here in the Department of Social Sciences that aims to better connect our students and alumni with the disciplines we study and the world. Our department motto is Humani Nihil Alienum, meaning nothing human is alien to us. And with this podcast, we'll endeavor to increase our understanding of what's going on in the world through the lenses of political science and economics. While we initially planned to produce regular content after an April launch, the move to telework and remote learning has disrupted that significantly. Nonetheless, we hope you enjoy this first episode, and we look forward to sharing more with you as soon as we can. All right, welcome uh, to the Social Podcast. I'm Tom Fox, uh, your host, and we're very lucky to have as our guest today, Dr. Elizabeth Economy. Uh, good to see you again, Dr. Economy. Great to be here, Tom. Oh. And please call me Liz. Okay, I'll call you Liz for this, but um, I'll mostly refer to you as Dr. Economy as long as you're comfortable with that. Uh, as a reminder to our listeners, she is the CV Star Senior Fellow and Director for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And we were lucky enough in the Department of Social Sciences to welcome her uh, to Senior Conference last year, where she was a panelist uh, at our conference on the emerging environment in the Indo-Pacific, drivers, directions, and decisions. Now that our conference report is coming out in sometime soon, hopefully by the time this is airing, we are lucky to have her uh, as a kind of a celebration launch for our, our podcast here. Before we get too deep into talking about the conference, Liz, I can't help but start off by talking about the hot topic of the moment, which is, of course, the coronavirus. Uh, the last month, you in February, mid-February, you wrote about uh, it as a stress test for Xi Jinping um, in China, um, both domestically as well as with his international uh, standing. And obviously, it's been quite a challenge for China to deal with, and now it's becoming much more of a global challenge. Uh, would you mind uh, commenting a little bit uh, and talking on how the crisis is playing out for China and what you think the long-term ramifications will be? Sure. I mean, I, I do think it's probably too early to predict um, all of the different implications uh, for Xi Jinping, um, you know, looking out, you know, six months or, or more. Um, I think what we've seen thus far uh, is, you know, initially, frankly, um, some surprise that, you know, Xi Jinping, who has amassed all of this power into his own hands, you know, chairman of everything, uh, in the early stages of the crisis, seemed to take a back seat. Uh, he even disappeared for a few days. We didn't know what he was doing. He then, you know, assigned his premier, Li Keqiang, uh, to run point on dealing with coronavirus in China. Um, and there was a bit of an outcry. People were kind of like, what, what are you doing, Xi Jinping, right? You're our leader. You're our fearless leader. Where are you? And, uh, and then he really did step up to the plate. And uh, you started to see reports that, in fact, you know, Xi Jinping had predicted that China might face uh, some sort of major uh, health challenge you know, over a year ago in some speech. And uh, he became, again, kind of the commander in charge. And you started to see you know, the quarantine, quarantining not only of uh, Wuhan uh, in Hubei province, which is the epicenter of the crisis, of course, of the epidemic, uh, but also many other cities uh, you know, were put under quarantine. Uh, and began to portray Xi Jinping in a much more decisive way. Uh, and the narrative that emerged as all of China's ambassadors and the media began to pick up was really that, you know, Xi Jinping was in command, Xi Jinping was in control, and by the way, you know, China was reacting, you know, faster and more efficiently than, you know, anyone else could have imagined or could have accomplished. And this is not only uh, China's gift to its own people, but in fact, uh, 
this is China's gift to the world. And uh, I was at a conference at UC San Diego where the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. was speaking, Cui mm-hmm. Tiankai, and this was the message that he was, in fact, delivering, right? So wow. the world can, in fact, be grateful for, to China uh, for addressing this so efficiently. I do think, though, there is a, a counter-narrative that's uh, playing out within China at the level of civil society, uh, where the Chinese people you know, saw uh, that the first doctor who had alerted the right. country to the virus, uh, Li Wenliang, uh, you know, not only was he detained uh, and criticized, punished uh, for publicly alerting the, the country, but then he eventually died from the virus. Uh, and this caused a lot of outrage. Uh, and since that time, in fact, you know, other doctors who've been on the front lines uh, have died and uh, other uh, citizens who become kind of citizen journalists, you know, going out uh, around and trying to report on what's taking place on the ground, right, offering uh, a different perspective than the official media, they too have been detained and have been disappeared. Uh, and so I think there is a sense among the Chinese people that, you know, maybe we're not getting all the information that we, you know, need, that we deserve. Uh, and I think over the long term, there probably is going to be some erosion of legitimacy for Xi Jinping more broadly throughout society uh, as a result of this. Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. I loved uh, your point about the narratives because one of the side stories that's uh, played out over the last week or two is um, after Walter Russell Mead's column in the Wall Street Journal, um, the CCP uh, expelling some of the Wall Street Journal reporters who obviously had nothing to do with an opinion column that ran um, by Meade. Uh, and now we've had this kind of tit-for-tat back-and-forth exchange uh, where the U.S. is putting some limits on uh, Chinese journalists uh, who are reporting in America, changes in visa rules and all that kind of stuff. So th- this this legitimacy competition definitely uh, plays out uh, to a large extent in the media uh, and then in that, that narrative realm. Yeah, and I think it, it's a good point that you make, and I think it plays into a larger issue about the extent to which uh, China feels that it has the right to control narratives in other countries, mm. right? Because uh, so Walter, Walter Russell Mead's piece, which the Wall Street Journal entitled something like The Sick Man of Asia, Right, which is a you know an historical reference that frankly many Chinese scholars have used themselves to describe China in the past, but nonetheless you know can be seen in a rather pejorative light. Um, so the ostensibly right, the Wall Street Journal uh, reporters were kicked out uh, because the Chinese government didn't like this title. There was also a previous sort of tit for tat going on where the U.S. had declared. Uh, some news agencies, you know, foreign agents wanting them to register um, mm. under, you know, the uh, FARA. And so I think this is part of a, a bigger uh, issue uh, that deals with, as you suggest, you know, visas and things. But I do think at at some more profound level, um, if you look back, for example, to what the, the Chinese government did with regard to uh, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, of course. Uh, when he tweeted, you know, uh, uh, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, uh, and then all of a sudden you saw the Chinese government and Chinese business, you know, react uh, vociferously and you know, pulling all of the licensing agreements from the Rockets and and uh, canceling all the CCTV uh, broadcasts of the NBA games. But beyond that, what struck me was that the People's Daily, official newspaper of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, came out and said that uh, issues that touch on sovereignty or social stability do not fall within the purview of free speech. And so I think that 
element, right, that effort by the Chinese government to say to other countries, you have to abide by our limits, right, our constraints on mm-hmm. speech, right. or you will lose access to our market, I think is something that remains underappreciated right now in the United States. But we're going to see more and more of this happening. I think that's a fantastic point. I think it, it leads really well uh, into my next question for you, which is all about this moment we are in as um, of U.S.-China competition, because a, a key element of it is this kind of ability to define what's acceptable and how uh, these great powers leverage their economic power um, over, over markets and over access and over information, uh, over narratives, as you said. In the last month and a half or so, we've seen a bunch of big landmark studies come out. Uh, The Center for New American Security did one. The Aspen Strategy Group did one, which you were a part of. Sounds like a real hardship duty to go to Aspen in the (laughs) summer and talk about about China. No complaints. Exactly right. Uh, And then CFR's own uh, Bob Blackwell uh, recently updated his uh, grand strategy, his landmark uh, grand strategy study with uh, Ashley Tellis with some more specific policy proposals. Um, that came out in the last month. Um, and then, obviously, we're launching our own report. With all these reports coming um, out at the same time, and in this moment that we're in, um, what, why is it that there's so much kind of focused attention on Sino-American relations and grasping for um, a modus operandi for the future? And how confident are you, obviously, in this election year that U.S. policymakers will be able to distill all these conversations into something like a coherent new policy approach to China? So that's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, in the first instance, there's never a dull moment when it comes to China, and there are always reports coming out, some reports by people who know what they're talking about, (laughs) and some reports by people who don't know as much and probably shouldn't be talking as much. But no matter, um, there are always lots of reports. But I agree, this is a, a moment when you can kind of, within the space of six you know, six to 10 weeks, you're seeing a, a, a number of, of really reputable, frankly, um, institutions and scholars come out with uh, their thoughts about the U.S.-China relationship. I, there's always going to be a bump up when you're in an election year. Mm. Everybody wants to have some sort of input, you know, for the candidates, for the debates, even if these issues don't really dominate. Um, there is a sense that this is a moment um, when you actually can have some influence in the policy discussion and debate. So I think there is some rationale for why everything's coming out now because we are in the you know high season of of the you know next election. Um, but I think um, you know beyond that, there is a a call, or maybe even a yearning, uh, for a, a more strategic approach to China. And here, I give a lot of credit to the Trump administration, frankly, for recognizing that we are confronting a new and different kind of China, uh, that Xi Jinping has been transformative, that this is not the China that we anticipated you know, mm. in the 1990s and 2000s, a China that just if we engaged, if we brought them into international institutions, um, you know, that they would become a responsible stakeholder and then perhaps even you know, transform their political system. That's not what has happened. Um, and I think, and in fact, in, in many respects, you know, China is you know, posing a challenge across every front. So it could be the South China Sea, what China's doing in the Mm. South China Sea. It could be, uh, you know, what's happening in the United Nations, right? China's, you know, really starting to try to transform discourse in the UN. It controls, you know, four of the 15 
you know, UN agencies, and it's up now uh, to, to lead the World Intellectual Property Organization, which, you know, as, as one senator said, is really the fox in the hen house. Oh, right. Can this be real? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there are a whole range of issues, technology, theft. You know, there's so many different areas in which um, China poses challenges to the United States, right, to our values, to our interests, to our priorities. Um, and I think the Trump administration has recognized those challenges, has begun to push back against them, but has yet to develop a true overarching strategy for China, mm. right? What, um, what is the position of the United States going to be? What is it going to look like in the Asia Pacific and, and frankly, globally, both thinking about its relationship to China, but just in general, right? Because China is, you know, the second largest economy likely to be the largest economy in the future. Um, but we don't really have what I would call an overarching strategy. And so I think these reports are an effort to begin that dialogue, to move us past a more reactive, somewhat defensive uh, posture, which again, I, find, I do believe is understandable, uh, given how assertive China has been, right. to one where we are proactive and we are in fact asserting our own values, uh, a more positive narrative about our own role in the world. That's fantastic. And I think that um, speaks uh, very well to your contribution to the Aspen uh, Strategy Group report, which was titled The Struggle for Power. And then your chapter was called Reimagining Engagement, in which you offered uh, a thesis for Engagement 2.0, which had you know, five features, five key features to it. Could you uh, talk a little bit more about um, the last feature, um, which may be the one that's a little bit more counterintuitive for people because we have this we have this moment where competition's forward and people are talking about great power competition. People are alluding to maybe a second Cold War. Um, but your fifth feature is searching for common ground and common purpose with, uh, with China, uh, particularly in, the, in this coronavirus moment. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. So... I mean, again, I, I would certainly position myself, you know, with on along the spectrum of China analysts and scholars, um, position myself in among those who are prone to take a tougher line, who believe um, that China does pose a significant challenge and that we need to push back. At the same time, uh, I don't subscribe uh, to the idea put forward, you know, by some of my friends, uh, you know, like Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratner, that engagement has failed. Mm. And I think engagement has only failed if we understand it as, first of all, that China's reached the end of history, that Xi Jinping is it, and, and that China will never, you know, will not transform any further, that there is no hope for China as a responsible stakeholder or uh, that China will undergo greater political and economic reform. So I, I don't believe that. Also, uh, it is not the case that engagement failed unless you believe, you know, that somehow the U.S. had the power to transform China. We, exactly. we can't even transform yeah. Cuba. I'm not sure why we think we can transform <laughs> China. Um, but the real point is to say that, in fact, engagement has worked in some really important ways. And I started my uh, career researching China's environment. And when you look at the impact that the United States had on China's environment, it's been profound. 
right? And so we, you know, helped to develop and train um, China's first generation of environmental activists. Uh, they would come and, and live for months at a time in, you know, U.S. non-governmental organizations learning, how do you run an NGO? Because they didn't have any experience, you right, know, there in was the no 1990s. Civil society to there speak was, of. exactly, there was yeah. no civil society. Uh, we helped China develop its laws, its regulations. Um, you know, Japan helped build a second building for the Environmental Protection Agency. There was so much international engagement uh, around the environment. It was, tra and frankly, even if you look, you know, as, as recently as 2010, 2011, the real push that came uh, from the Chinese people, uh, you know, against the government to make the government transform its, you know, air pollution, you know, standards and its policies um, came because the United States was tweeting, you know, the air pollution statistics from its embassy. Right. And those statistics were radically different from the ones that the Chinese <laughs> government was publishing. And the people realized, you know, this isn't fog, it's smog. Mm. And so there's no way in which you know, engagement has not had a profound impact, you know, on China. The question is, where to from here? And I think, you know, at a time when the relationship is contentious, and I think understandably so, I think it is imperative, right, that we keep it from fraying beyond repair or that we move from, you know, what is a contentious, you know, relationship in the policy sphere to the you know, a real kinetic kind of conflict. Right. And so in order to do that, we need to have some areas where we are working together. And, uh, you know, it can be working together in third countries, you know, like public health in Africa has been a place where we've, you know, worked together in the past, and we should be able to work together again. Um, you know, climate change, if, you know, uh, we have a transition in our government um, to an administration that takes that as a priority again would be another area. Obviously, you know, one good sign right now in the midst of this coronavirus is that Chinese scientists and American scientists are actually collaborating in some cases to try to develop a vaccine. Mm. So engagement continues today. It's not really the policy of the governments of the two countries, um, but at the level of civil society engagement, I think it's it's absolutely essential uh, that we continue to work together and that we push our governments to try to find these kinds of, of common areas. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that answer. It's uh, fantastic. I, I think it uh, also ties back into some of what you talk about in your fourth point about developing U.S. resilience, U.S. political and economic resilience. And there's so much that goes on in domestic policy that ends up being a component of our national power or American national power that has to do with our domestic politics, has to do with the way our economy is um, structured. And it's, again, a little bit counterintuitive, someone who studies China, to be also inwardly focused on what the U.S. can do. But what are the big things that the U.S. should do that would uh, kind of position itself to be even more competitive vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese and then to really establish, re-establish maybe uh, some of that global leadership uh, that's fallen off? Yeah, I, I think um, there's a lot of concern right now, um, certainly within the broader China analyst and scholarly community, that um, you know, we not end up in a position where we are simply saying, you know, no to every Chinese initiative, um, but instead that we are putting forward our own positive initiatives. Mm -hmm. And so partly that stems from, yes, being strong and resilient at home. So 
we're going to say no to Huawei, for example, I think with some reason that we are concerned about uh, whether or not Huawei, uh, you know, has to be responsive to the Chinese government and will, you know, report uh, information uh, that would be transmitted through its, you know, 5G infrastructure. I think it's reasonable for us to be concerned about that. But we have no alternative, right? We uh, have not pursued uh, the development of full uh, infrastructure of 5G. We have components, but not the full infrastructure. Mm. Um, so how do we respond in a way that just doesn't tell other countries, don't <laughs> use Huawei, um, maybe use Ericsson, maybe use you know Nokia. We've got nothing to offer. But, but, um, but to think through a strategy that offers alternatives, positive alternatives. Um, similarly, when you look at something like the Belt and Road Initiative, right, the United States has been out of the infrastructure business for a long time. Not only infrastructure globally, but our own infrastructure is, it yeah. doesn't, is not serve as a model, generally speaking, uh, for other countries. They don't think of infrastructure, advanced infrastructure, is not the first thing that comes to mind when they think about the United States. Uh, and we've talked a lot, even in this administration, about improving our own infrastructure. And some of that's happening, but certainly not at the pace and scale that you see taking place in China. We need to make ourselves competitive, competitive at home. And then again, if we're going to be exporting right, our, our, um, our efforts to do you know, cooperative partnerships with Japan and Australia on infrastructure, uh, you know, putting forth this idea of a blue dot initiative, setting high standards for infrastructure. It helps a lot if we can provide alternatives, right? Again, not just saying to a number of countries, don't accept Chinese you know, investment uh, and lending through its Belt and Road project. Uh, here, we, the United States, have an alternative. You know, this is what we can offer, right? So I think there, you know, and then people will often point to things like research and development and the fact that China is investing so much uh, in, in research and not just in the D part of it, but also in basic research, which has not been a traditional strength of theirs, has been a long time strength of With the United States. Right, exactly. Government-funded research, But, for but sure. our government is, is not keeping pace. Uh, and frankly, this administration has not placed a particular priority on that, um, despite the fact that many of the U.S.'s greatest innovations, you know, derive from public-private partnership in research. So uh, I think that's something else that people will be looking to the next administration, whether it is a Trump administration or a, a Democratic administration, uh, to rethink our own investments in R&D and in education. And then, of course, you know, one of the lifebloods of, of the U.S. and what has made us so great, our immigration policy, uh, which is clearly has gone awry in many different respects. So I think those are the types of issues, you know, that we have to be thinking about, right? How do we make ourselves strong at home, right? Our own educational system, our own research, our innovation, you know, uh, uh, ecosystem, um, how we welcome others to our country, how we continue to attract the best and the brightest. Right. Um, those are the things that make us great and, frankly, make other countries think we're great, too. Exactly, which is certainly an important piece of it. And uh, it, it's, I think it's interesting to watch these reports come out and see more and more talk about how domestic policy is affecting our ability to shape Chinese choices and then also to attract um, to keep attracting our allies and you know, future partners because the, the way that the conversations develop about EU-China competition, the Belt and Road Initiatives, uh, kind of inroads into Italy, but a little bit less so in other places. And like you would mentioned, the, the Huawei uh, concerns, UK being kind of chief among them in terms of the way people have followed it in the news, but Germany obviously made some big decisions there uh, as well. There, there's just so much 
ground to cover that where the the nexus between domestic for, domestic policy and foreign policy is really really tied tightly. Exactly. Um, I guess the, the last thing, I, the last kind of question I'll have for you is to turn back to that uh, a discu- previous discussion a little bit on the narrative. What exactly the alternative narrative um, for the U.S. as it maybe struggles with some concerns around our own democracy and puts that forward uh, as a, as something much better than the the Chinese model of authoritarian state led capitalism, which you know ties in with the kind of techno uh, authoritarianism and uh, AI and and big data and all that kind of stuff uh, that comes together. But the the U.S. obviously offers something different, um, which is tied with our free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, but more so just the way we think about those freedoms that you talked about previously, that, that no one has a, um, an ability to define where the limits of free speech are. Um, so if, if you could comment a little bit more about that, right. I'd really appreciate it. So I think, it. I think, you know, maybe the most important thing we can do aside from developing our own resilience is, again, to put forward a um, competitive and compelling uh, narrative. And I think it's it's actually there. I think uh, the president's, you know, free and open Indo-Pacific initiative uh, is really rooted in our core values, you know, freedom of navigation, you know, good governance, transparency, accountability, the rule of law, and free trade. Of course, he includes free and fair trade. But, but I, I think, um, you know, if, if we could, if the president would uh, articulate that, if he would raise that banner um, and if we would develop the policies and the institutions, the frameworks, the relationships with other countries that would advance that and support that narrative, I think we're, we're 50% of the way there. Um, because, look, nine of the 10 world's largest economies, uh, most thriving economies, are democracies. They're market democracies. Exactly right. And so for any developing country who's going to look uh, at its future, right? That future should look <laughs> like <laughs> one of those nine, and uh, not like that one outlier. The exception, to not the rule, like the exception the to the rule. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, what is it that we're doing wrong? And I think partly we have lost our way with our values. Um, when people look at our domestic politics right now, they don't necessarily see a country that they want to emulate. Um, so, how do we bring ourselves together? You know, project what is best about the United States get that free and open Indo-Pacific narrative out there and, and again, supported by real evidence and real projects. And, you know, again, to be fair, I think below the level of the president, there are many people in this administration who are working very hard uh, to do political capacity building in developing countries to help to try to bolster, you know, democratic institutions and 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 principles uh, that are looking to do, you know, infrastructure projects like you know electrifying Papua New Guinea. And mm-hmm. there, there are many people really working toward this. But what is missing is that we don't really have our president out there advancing uh, those kinds of core values, really either at home or abroad. Okay, thank you so much uh, for that answer. And I think the work you've done, as well as the Aspen Strategy Group and a number of the other scholars uh, that you mentioned, uh, goes a long way to to 
starting the conversation and getting the conversation moving um, in the right direction. So thank you for joining us today and having this conversation. One question I would ask you uh, before we uh, get going is to recommend um, some reading or something watching or something like that to our listenership, which is primarily West Point cadets and then um, former West Point cadets who are now out there uh, as junior military officers in their first or second assignments and might be more interested in learning about uh, U.S.-China relations. Look, there are so many great books out there on, you know, individual topics, whether it's China environment or, you know, cyber issues or uh, sort of the Communist Party. It's easy to pick those up on the bookshelves. But if I had to make one recommendation, I think, for anybody who's really interested in understanding China, right, from the bottom up in a, in a frankly, a really entertaining way, I would recommend um, a book called Wild Swans, which is an intergenerational tale, you know, three generations of, of women, actually, uh, in China, um, and it's uh, autobiographical, and it really helps you understand sort of where China has come from, um, you know, where it is today and where it's likely to go in, uh, I think, a way that I've never seen replicated. So that would be my number one recommendation for a book to get started That's on. awesome, and it does capture intergenerational change in a way that is very hard to compare like a policy book um, exactly. to, uh, for sure. And I'm happy to hear it because we do have selections from Wild Swans on our syllabus in the Politics of China course. Oh, I'm so impressed. In social Good for sciences. you. So that's a little pat on the back. That's perfect. <laughs> Thank you again so much uh, for your time. We'll include uh, links to all this great stuff in the show notes. Uh, and thanks for tuning in today. Thank you, Tom. That was the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of West Point, the U.S. Army, or the Department of Defense. Please let us know what you think and what you want to hear next. A special thanks to the West Point Band for providing our music. Thanks again for listening and have a great Soch Day. 